Welcome to church today. My name's Peter. I'm one of the uh, pastors here. Here's where I want to start this morning. Uh, I want to start with a question, and if you've been around Restoration Church long enough, you know that we get personal, so let's just start with that um, this morning, and I hope it's okay. Uh, it's bad luck if it's not. Um, here's, here's the question. How many times have you needed to be rescued by Jesus? Do you have a number? Was, uh, was it only the day you became a Christian? How many, how many times can you count? I want to suggest to you that the day that you became a Christian is not the only time that you need to be saved by Jesus, uh, needing to be rescued by him. What about, just tweak the question a little bit uh, on this one, how many times should you need to be rescued or saved by Jesus? That's an interesting one, right? At that point in time, it kind of pushes in on us a little bit. Um, yeah, it pushes in on that little part of us that feels like we should have our act together by now. The fear that at some point we're just going to get really irritating for Jesus. Does anyone know what I'm talking about with that? Um, that we're not as strong or wise or able as we should be by now. And, and he'll say to us, eventually, you're out of chances, Skip. All right, or whatever your name is. Weird name to throw out there, but I'm just saying, <laughs> you're out. You used them up, you had a credit when I saved you, you had a credit, and now you're done. It's empty. Uh, your account's empty. Um, it pushes in on our shame a little bit, I think, this question. Um, I wonder what you'd say. How many times should you need to be saved by Jesus? And and I don't want you to give me, even just in your head, I don't want you to give me the correct answer. Give me the, the lived one, the one that you carry with you, the one which wins over what you know is true. I want to start by looking very briefly, just to con- contextualise things today with, today with a, uh, a psalm. Um, and it's, it's a psalm, uh, it's one of my favourites. Uh, and uh, I particularly like the uh, ESV translation of it in the opening section and the closing section. So I'm just going to read you um, the, uh, the opening section. I'm going to put it on the screen from the ESV. I give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. You've been redeemed. You meant to say so. That's, that's normal if you've been redeemed, if you've been saved, if you've been rescued. Whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. And then what the psalm does after this is it goes through and sketches out a whole bunch of different scenarios. Um, and there's actually five different scenarios. And I think the point of the psalm is you're meant to find a scenario that matches your scenario. And, and you're meant to be able to say amen to one of the scenarios. I want to give you the first one. This is out of the uh, NIV. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty and their lives ebbed away. Do you get, you get a sense of it? Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. 
And so you have these five kind of stanzas that kind of cash out. And I really encourage you this week is to actually read it and meditate on it. There's these five different uh, situations that people have ended up in and they, they cry out to the Lord and he comes and he rescues them. And, uh, and I would just encourage you, if you read it this week, see if you can find one that fits you. It's like, yeah, no, that's, that's the one for me. And just follow the trajectory of that, that stanza. The, the beautiful thing that this psalm does at the end is it wraps all of it up with this um, amazing verse. And, and this is it here. Uh, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So um, it's wise to attend to and consider the love of the Lord. Anyone give me an amen for that? And so today, I, I, honestly, I, just, I want us to slow down today. And I want us to do verse 43 of Psalm 107. Let's just slow down and consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And our text today is going to be from the book of John. It's going to be our focal point. And today, we're going to look at one verse, all right? And maybe you could even say not even one verse. We're going to look at about three quarters of one verse today. That's what we're going to spend all of our meditation today on that. And I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. Uh, it's this one. John 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. There you go. Spoonerism, the Passover festival. Uh, let me just make a couple of comments just, to, just so that you know. There is a lot of debate about the, the timestamp that, that has been laid down here. Um, some people think it's actually talking about the night before, which would make it Wednesday night, not Thursday night. Um, there's a lot of debate about it. Uh, but it, it looks like the Last Supper. When you read chapters 13 to 17, it, it kind of looks like the Last Supper. Um, and, and I think, I'm happy to have a longer conversation with you later. I think that what John's actually talking about is the feet washing bit. He's saying it's just before the Passover festival uh, and Jesus is going to wash their feet just before the Passover festival and then that, the rest is actually going to take place immediately uh, after that. Um, so kind of just, before, just for, before the meal. But at the end of the day, I don't think it changes the meaning of what we're looking at today. So uh, I'll just encourage you not to get too hung up on it. And if you want to have a chat in more detail about that later on, you can come and see me and I'd be happy to, uh, happy to do that. What I want to do is spend the rest of our time today meditating on the second three quarters of the verse. Let me read it. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so what I want us to look at today is uh, Jesus knows, Jesus loved, and Jesus loves. That's what we're going to look at today. So let's start with the first one. Jesus knew, Jesus knows. And what, what are we looking at there? Um, this section of the verse. Uh, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Now, John is at pains in his gospel to make sure that you know that Jesus is not out of control. Jesus knows everything that he's doing. He knows where he's going. He's across all the details. Jesus is never duped or tricked. Uh, he knows what's going on and he's intentional about what he's doing. And, and this kind of pops up over and over in John's gospel. And in fact, 
You will see this between John chapter 13 and the end of John's gospel. Look at these other couple of examples. You go down to John chapter 13, verse 3, only a couple of verses later. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. John 13, verse 18. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I've chosen. He's talking about Judas and the betrayal at that point. Um, You just need to know that Jesus knows. He's omniscient. He knows everything. We know that. But what does Jesus actually know about in the context here? He knows about his betrayal and his death. And we actually see a similar thing pop up later on in the Gospel of John in chapter 18, verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked him, who is it you want? This is in the Garden of Gethsemane where they come to arrest Jesus. He, he knows what's going down. He's clear about it. He's walking toward it. And then when he's hanging on the cross in John 19, verse 28, later knowing that everything had now, been for, uh, had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. See, he knows. He knows. Now, you may be familiar with these texts, but here's another way to put it. Jesus knew the trouble which was coming his way and he faced it, he walked towards it and he walked through it. Jesus knew the trouble which was coming his way and he faced it, walked towards it and walked through it. And you know, this is huge, right? Uh, This is huge because if you look at this and you see what's good for Jesus, who is a true human, you'll see that there's relevance for the trouble that we face. If these things are true about his trouble, then they'll likely be true for ours also. Let me give you a handful of downstream pieces of relevance to your life. Here's here's the first one. Um, Jesus knows about your current trouble. Are you in trouble? He knows about it. It's not a mystery to him. He's not somewhere else attending to something and he's caught off guard by the trouble that's happening for you right now. He knows his own trouble that he's going to be walking through and he knows your trouble. He knows it perfectly. Here's the second thing um, that I think is relevant here is that Jesus knows what trouble is coming your way which you don't know about yet. Um, It sounds a bit negative and a bit fear-inspiring right trouble is going to come your way this week it just will problems are going to happen this week and and at one level it's like this is a bit scary but when you think about it this way it's actually more comforting than disconcerting because Jesus knows about the troubles that are coming your way this week that you don't know about right now and do you know what that means it means that you don't need to be across it right now You can't be across it right now. Nothing is a surprise to him. Here's the third one. This is really interesting, right? Uh, The sovereign, loving Jesus coexists with trouble. Right? The sovereign, loving Jesus coexists with trouble. Jesus' loving rule and his presence in the midst of trouble, are not mutually exclusive. They, they run at the same time. Just because he's loving and he's powerful doesn't mean that you get removed from trouble because he was loving and powerful then and he didn't get removed from trouble. You see that? 
It didn't happen for him, and it often won't happen for you. And this is one of the, the biggest objections that people have toward the Christian faith, is that how can there be a good and loving, all-powerful God and there be evil and suffering? Well, Jesus was the good and loving, all-powerful God in the middle of trouble and suffering. It's not an answer to it, but you can't ask the question anymore because the God who you want to criticise is actually right in the middle of it and it doesn't get taken away from him. You, you get what I'm saying? Here's the, here's the last one. This is, a, this is a big dog, this one, but this is, a, this is really important. Um, and, and don't think I'm being cheesy and simplistic here because I'm just going to unpack it. Jesus has good plan, has a good plan here to bring into pass in the midst of your trouble. It's what it was for him and it's what it will be for you. If you belong to him, there is a good plan that he's bringing to pass in the midst of your trouble. Now, what I want to do is I want to show you the trouble cycle according to Scripture, all right, so that you can see it. Now, I'm not saying that I always know what the good plan is that he's going to be up to and what he's going to do through it, but you just need to know that there's always a good plan that he's up to in the midst of trouble. So let me take you through what I think is a biblical trouble cycle, all right? And, and this is it. And where you start is you start on the top right. You start with something good. Everything that God created is good, right? Evil and sin came into the world and you just need to know that evil and sin wreck good things, right? Um, and what you end up with as you move down is that evil comes in and then good gets corrupted, right? Now, evil and sin wreck good things for no good reason other than that they're wreckers, right? They just like to corrupt. That's what they do, and I'm kind of personifying evil and sin, but you get the point here. They're just a wreckers. They're, I've told this story before about my border colleague just trashing plants that I bought and planted the day before, and he just did it in the middle of the night, right? And you come out in the morning and he's skulking around the backyard with his head down because he knows he's done the wrong thing. It's like, what did you do that for? It's like, well, he just got in the middle of the night and got ADD like every border collie has and he trashed my passion fruit vine, right? And it's like, why'd you do that? And it's like, there isn't a reason. He just wanted to trash it. And that's the reality. I mean, at the core, evil and sin are actually irrational, right? And they don't make sense. So what they do is they wreck good stuff for no good reason. And what it does is it leaves us asking a very, very good question, and that's the question, why? If you had something good and evil and sin comes in and trashes it and just wrecks it for no good reason and you don't ask why, that's probably a problem. Why did evil and sin wreck that good thing? There isn't a good reason. They just wrecked it. And so we end up asking why, why? It's the nature of evil. And so we look for purpose in the middle of trouble. And, and here's the bottom line. If God doesn't get involved, we just end up in a world where evil and sin wreck good things and there's no purpose and it's irrational and it doesn't make sense. But the promise in Scripture is that God infuses evil that's had the reason and the purpose and the goodness sucked out of it. Scripture says that God infuses it with with purpose and with a plan again. Do, do you get what I'm saying? And, and it's actually, and I, 
some of you go, yeah, well, what is it in my life? And I go, I don't know. I'm not in charge, right? But just think about it conceptually. If, if that last top left-hand step doesn't happen, your life is going to suck. It is. It is really going to suck. And then you'll die. Because there's no purpose or point to anything. And you just ended up with a whole bunch of wrecked things. And there's no goodness that's going to come out of it. Do you want to live in a world like that? I don't. Humans can't live in a world like that. Even in the midst, if you're right in the middle of some really, really gritty, high-end trouble. And you're asking why. I say, good on you for asking why. And if you find it hard to latch a hold of the top left-hand thing, that God's going to infuse it with a good plan and that he's doing it already, I'm cool with that. But if it, if it isn't true, we're all in trouble. Jesus knows. <laughs> Jesus knows. Number two. Jesus loved. John 13 verse 1 having loved his own who are in the world. Well, it's a big concept for John. The idea is that Jesus, according to John, is that Jesus has come and his, uh, his purpose has been to, to bring his people out of the world and the world is kind of the whole of lost humanity. And if you're a Christian here today, you're one of those who have been drawn to Jesus out of the world. Um, but the focus in this verse is actually not on uh, who were his own and who was the world and rah, rah, rah. That's a given. The focus is on uh, Jesus' love, how he took care of them. And so what I wanted to do quickly this morning is just do a quick skim back through the Gospel of John and see how he loved his own. Um, and I think as we do that, we'll see how he loves us. Um, so let's, let's get into it. Remember this one, John 2? water into wine wedding banquet the wine runs out and jesus's mum gets a bit overbearing he says my time's not come she goes just do whatever he says um it's before his ministry started proper not a very spiritual problem mind you i mean that would be a little disturbing probably for some of us church types if jesus is handing out more alcohol at the end of a end of a wedding because they've drunk it all right um, but Jesus loves them and, um, and he takes care of them and he helps and we, we know the story right it turns out to be the best wine at the whole wedding didn't it and I'd ask you uh, have you ever been in a pretty tight potentially embarrassing situation of your own making which Jesus has gotten you out of move on to the next chapter in John chapter 3 and we see Jesus having a long conversation it would appear with Nicodemus a religious leader gets in this conversation with him and Jesus makes this stunning statement in verse 10 of John chapter 4 about Nicodemus he says you are the teacher of Israel and you don't even understand these basic things it's kind of you read that verse you go oof right it's just just landed a body blow at that point but what does Jesus do next? Well, he sits there and he spends time talking with Nicodemus. 
He sits with him that night. He converses with him. He helps him to understand what's true and right. It's the classic uh, statement um, about unless someone's born again, they can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That said to Nicodemus, we've got, uh, it would seem, uh, John 3.16, the most famous verse arguably of all time. And that said to Nicodemus. Um, and we have good reason when we go further on in John toward the end that, um, that Nicodemus is uh, over the line because he uh, helps to bury Jesus, which would be a very unusual thing for him to do if he wasn't over the line. And, and you know, it all happened because Jesus loved him. And he sat there and he had a conversation with him. And, and Jesus taught the teacher who actually didn't know that much. Have you ever been unclear about a basic spiritual reality and over time God helped you to see it? Have you? Go to uh, John chapter 4 and we see Jesus having this conversation with a Samaritan woman. She's a half-caste according to the Jews. And really an outcast, uh, even probably with her own people. Her uh, failures are well documented. She's five times divorced and she's in a de facto relationship. Jesus' disciples go into town to Maccas to get some food and Jesus stays and he talks with this Samaritan woman one-on-one. It's a beautiful conversation um, where he sees her and he knows her, he spends time with her. She ends up going into the city after it and uh, all these people become Christians in the city because of this conversation. It's amazing, it's amazing. Jesus loved her. Have you ever felt like an outcast? Have you ever done something or some things which are shameful and Jesus came and sat with you? Have you ever known Jesus coming near you in the midst of your failures? You read on and chapter 4 and You see the story of the royal official's sick son. His son's dying and he asks Jesus to heal him. It's a sad situation. I mean, anyone who's a parent knows how gritty it is when something happens to your kids, right? And here's this royal official whose kid, his son is is dying, is very sick and is dying. Um, And uh, you you can, all those, as I said, all those who are parents just know what it's like when when your kids are in trouble and you can do nothing to help them. Uh, Jesus heals the son on the spot and the man and his family believe. He tends to the needs of the family, the father. Have you ever asked Jesus to meet the needs of your children? Has he ever done anything for them? We move on to John chapter 6 and... uh, it's the classic story of the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men plus women and children have come out to Jesus and the, it's the time of the day where they're hungry and uh, the disciples are really caring. They probably employ them as pastors in your church because they said you should send them home because they're hungry and we're not going to feed them. We can't feed them. Um, Jesus says, no, uh, let's feed them. And he uh, pulls off this incredible miracle with the lunch of a little boy. 
So he feeds them. So loving. The Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread. And he, he did that, didn't he? Did you have breakfast this morning? Did you have dinner last night? Move on some more. We get into John chapter 7. And um, we see Jesus teaching. He goes up to a festival and he teaches. And I just want to let you know that Jesus teaching is a really loving thing to do. Um, Because most people in the Gospels are frustrating or needy. Uh, when it comes to Jesus and rather than giving them the silent treatment he uh, he teaches them often he keeps talking to them he keeps helping them to see the truth and there's a beautiful I think it's in the gospel of Matthew but there's a beautiful statement I think in the gospel of Matthew where it says Jesus looked out on the crowd and he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd and so he began to teach them and teaching's a very very loving thing to do Has Jesus ever taught you about what is true and right through the scripture or a preacher or a teacher? Has he ever done that? We get to John chapter 9 and uh, there's a healing of the man born blind. So there's this man that was born blind and the disciples lovingly bring him to Jesus and say, is he blind from his own sin or his parents' sin? I'm not being sarcastic. Imagine that. I mean, if if that was you um, and someone just goes, I'm going to take you to Jesus and we're just going to work out whether it's your fault or whether it's your parents' fault, which is hereditary fault anyway. All right. Um, Jesus says, neither. He spits on the ground. He makes some mud with saliva. He puts it on his eyes. He goes, the man goes and washes in the pool of Siloam and he began to see. But it doesn't end there. Jesus' love for him doesn't end there because he gets into all this trouble with the religious leaders at this point. You remember this story? And in the end, they go, we're going to kick you out of the synagogue because you're down with Jesus. And he doesn't even know where Jesus is anymore. But you know what Jesus does? Jesus goes and finds the man. He seeks him out. He closes the deal. The man becomes a believer and he loves him. Doesn't he? Has Jesus ever healed you from anything? Has Jesus ever sought you out when you've been ostracized and rejected by other people? Ever? Move on in John's gospel and we get to John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. (laughs) We didn't do this too long ago, right? Lazarus is ill, very ill. And Mary and Martha send word, his sister send word to Jesus saying, you better come and help. And Jesus stays where he is for two more days. Lazarus dies. And then he comes and Jesus comes and he he comforts the sisters. It's, It's a beautiful, beautiful story. And then he goes in and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus' love for them just runs the whole way through this story. Have you ever sensed Jesus was alongside you in your pain? You ever been in a situation where Jesus has brought life in the midst of a place where death is reigning? 
you picking up what I'm putting down? This is only the Gospel of John, folks. Right? He did, didn't he? Having loved his own here in the world. Listen to this. I want you to hear me. He loved his own and he still loves his own. Can anyone give me an amen for that? Yeah? He does. He does. Jesus loved. Yeah, we'll just finish with this. Jesus loves. Last part of verse 1. He loved them to the end. Now, what does that mean? Well, it could mean to the fullest extent, to the max. It could mean that, and that would be good. But I don't think that's the main thing that John's talking about here. I think it means that Jesus loved right to the end of his own life. I think that's what John means here. And, and I want to stop at this moment and ask you another question, because we're kind of meditating on the Lord's love today. I want to ask you this question. When are you hardest to love? Perhaps I shouldn't be asking you. <laughs> Should be asking your spouse or your family or your housemate. When are you hardest to love? In the context of Jesus loving you, you probably have a little bit of an idea. could be the area where you keep going back to him for help maybe probably the one that you don't seem to master the one that you need rescuing from time and time again you know the one the one that you don't even go back to him and talk to him about anymore because you've asked him so many times you think he's reluctant to help you now because you're not learning you're not working it out. You're not going forward in it. And so you just don't go back to him any, anymore. Do you, do you have one of these? I do. I have moments for me where I have these repetitive things that I struggle with. And whether you want to call them sins or weaknesses or they're both. For me, it's almost like sometimes I'm saying to the Lord, I'm going to make the decision for you about whether to help me or not so that you don't have to go through the hassle of listening to me. So I won't even talk to you about it. And sometimes I don't even come to him with it. Do you have one of those? You don't have to. I'm happy to be the only one. I've got a strange encouragement for you, if this is you. Um, whatever the time... Uh, you've thought of where you think it's the hardest to love you whatever time or context or or place where you think you're the hardest to love it isn't the hardest place for Jesus to love you there you you might think it is it isn't all right this was the hardest place for Jesus to love you see this is the end for Jesus he 
he gets crucified and he carries your sins, your and my specific sins, in his body on the cross. That is the time where it was hardest to love you. But here's the good news, right? This is, this is the good news. He was loving you even then. He loved you to the end. To the end. You see, the measure of the quality of someone's love is how they love when it's the hardest to love. That's the measure of the quality of someone's love. You, you know this, right? Because it's easy to love people sometimes, right? But when it gets really, really hard to love someone and you keep loving them, it says something about the quality of the love that you have for them. If it's really hard and they keep turning up, then it says something about their love. And this is Jesus, right? There's something you need to know here. There's something you already know clearly. And I'm just going to hope to connect the dots for you here because it's obvious. That if someone does the harder thing, then the easier thing is easier. True? If someone does the harder thing, then the easier thing is easier. If you take a bench press, for example, all right? Um, last year, I, I went to, I go to the Highfields Rec Center gym a few times a week, most weeks. Anyway, I went out there this Saturday morning. This is a true story, by the way. This is not, this is not fictional. I went out there this Saturday morning. I go in there and I get organized. I'm starting to do my routine. And who do you reckon's in there? I'm not even making this up, but it was Wayne Bennett. All right? The Dolphins coach, the ex-Broncos coach, and the coach of every other team that's ever won a premiership. I looked at him and I said, geez, I reckon that's Wayne Bennett. All right? And I didn't want to be like this little teeny bopper kind of groupy all right so I'm, I'm taking photos in the mirror so <laughs> and it was right this rugby league story came on the tv and he came and stood over and watched the rugby league story I don't know what he was doing there I understand he lives on the downs here um, but but you know the thing that was um was really um impressive for me about Wayne is he's, he's well into his 70s and he's bench pressing like a boss in there you know I reckon I reckon he was doing at least 100 kilos on on the bench press uh, in there as a, like a 70 plus year old you know now what if I went up to him in the gym that day and said Wayne I can see that you can bench press 100 but I want to test you do you reckon you can do 30 right? You just go, well, that's a dumb question, right? Because if you can do 100, you can do 30. Easy. And he'd probably say something like, yeah, I can do 30. Easy. Why? Because if you can lift the heavier weight, you can lift the lighter one. That's, that's how the logic works. I'm finished name dropping. You get the point? If the hardest time to love you is when Jesus was hanging on the cross, carrying your sins in his body, 
then every other moment of carrying you is easy. Here's another way to put it. If Jesus loved you to the end, then you can be assured he will love you in every other moment too. So, don't doubt him. This is why every great love story involves self-sacrifice. And it's the reason why the best love stories involve self-sacrifice that ends in death at the end of the person giving their lives for someone else because that is the point where it's the last thing that they have and if they give the last thing that they have out of love for the other person you're meant to stand back and go oh whoa that is some serious love but no one no person who has ever sacrificed their lives for anyone else carried those person's sins in their body as they died If you give up the thing most precious to you, if you continue to love at the hardest moment, if you love someone to the end, then it says something about the quality of your love, does it not? And you just need to know that by and large, we we don't do this. Fallen humans don't do this. Take someone special. Paul reflects this uh, idea in um, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all thanks? But I wonder if you'd stand with me and I'll, uh, I'll pray and I'll give thanks to the Lord for his love for us. Yeah, let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we just thank you for your love for us. And we thank you for the stories. And there's, there's more stories of your love for us than there are people in this room. We've got countless, every single person's got countless stories of your love for us. And we would expect nothing less from you. And that's not because we demand anything of you. We just would expect nothing less from you because you loved us to the end. And why wouldn't you, along with your son, give us all things and do good and loving and beautiful things in us and around us and for us? And God, also just thank you for, Jesus, the way that you you stayed true and dedicated and focused in the midst of trouble. Because there are some people here today who probably don't feel your love much today. They feel like they're just in trouble. Maybe they are in kind of trouble, trouble, or maybe it's just there's trouble happening around them and they haven't brought it upon themselves. I pray today that you would encourage them that being in the middle of trouble is not inconsistent with you being sovereign and loving today. You'd strengthen them, that you'd put steel in their in their backbone in their spine and remind them that you love them that trouble is not inconsistent with love amen